Well, good morning. Let's pray. Holy God and Father in heaven, we come before you today because you have purchased our salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have assembled us today in the fellowship of your Holy Spirit as your church in order to hear from you and respond with worship. We ask that you help us to do that in such a way today that is pleasing to you. And we know that it can't be pleasing to you unless it's both done in spirit and in truth. So please apply your word to our hearts and transform us with it. Help us to leave here differently than we came. May we be transformed and molded into your image as you teach us here today. And we ask that in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul during his third missionary journey, somewhere between 53 and 55 AD while he was in Ephesus. It was only about three years before this that he planted the church there in Corinth during his second missionary journey, and then he wrote them a letter. That letter is now lost to antiquity. We do not have access to that letter. However, this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written in order to clear up confusion from the first letter and to address specific problems in the church because Paul had received word from Chloe's people and a letter from the church. And so in 1 Corinthians, we see 10 main issues addressed, and each one, there is a gospel solution provided. Most of the problems in the church were related to sexual sin and failed fellowship. And so when we get to chapter 15, where we are today, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to address the 10th and final problem. And before he does, he first lays down the gospel. Because the gospel produces holiness and unity among the true believers in the church. And if the gospel is going to serve as the solution to the problems in the church, well, then the people of the church need to not only understand the gospel, but also affirm the gospel. And so today, that's what we are going to seek to do, to understand and affirm the gospel. By now, your Bible should be open. Please join me as we read verses 1 through 4. It says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Today's message is titled, Affirming the Gospel. 
And in our passage, we are going to see five main affirmations concerning the gospel. And the first one that we see is that the gospel is the foundation of your faith. The gospel is the foundation of your faith. The word now in the beginning of our passage is a climactic now, in the sense that all leading up to this, there has been problem after problem addressed, and in some way the gospel has been used to provide a solution, and now the gospel is being explained. And it is significant in this context that he addresses the church as brothers. The word brothers is a term of endearment. It is a statement of affection, and it is letting them know and us that even though the church was struggling with sin, even though the church was young and immature and divided and all over the place, even though he was writing to correct the church, he still felt a sense of love and unity in the gospel. And so what is the gospel? Well, for starters, as a word in English, the word gospel comes from the word God spell, which means good tidings. In the Greek, it means the bringing of good news. But when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the passages that, that spoke of bringing in an important message or announcing salvation, those were translated with the word gospel. So when we get to the New Testament, the gospel is an authoritative proclamation by an ambassador, somebody who is sent to proclaim it, concerning the coming of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of Old Testament promises about salvation. And one of the things we miss by reading this passage in English as opposed to the Greek is that we don't realize that right here in this first verse, the word gospel is actually here twice. First, we see it as a noun where it says of the gospel, but then where it's translated, I preach to you, this is actually the word gospel as a verb which means to evangelize or to preach the gospel. And what this tells us is that the gospel is not just a message to be received as if to say, yeah, 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 I understand, I believe, now let's move on. No, no, no. It now becomes a central part of the Christian life. And by its very nature, it demands that we not only receive it and accept it, but we also pass it on to others. And we can see this in places such as Jude, where it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we cannot pay lip service to the gospel The gospel must become central to the Christian life. And we can see here that he preached the gospel to the church and they received it. And that word received is actually a word that means accept. And in their acceptance of it, it became the foundation on which they stand. For those of you who don't know, my son loves trucks and vehicles. And even at the age of three, he's already an avid reader. 
And so we take him to the library about three times a week, and we take out 10 or 15 different books, and we bring them home, and sometimes he'll burn through all those books within an hour time and keep cycling through them until he goes back. Many of those books are on trucks and vehicles. And so one of the things my wife and I enjoy doing is taking our son on walks in new developing areas. And so one of the places we like to go, for example, is the River's Edge in Oakmont. And as we walk through these, area, at, through these neighborhoods and we come to these new plots where either a new house or a new apartment building or some new structure is being built, we've come to realize that when it's a brand new plot, there are sometimes upwards of 10 different construction vehicles on one plot. And my son loves to just point them out and start to tell us about them and to tell us the difference. And every now and then I try to point them out and he corrects me. Go figure. But one of the observations that we've made as we have been doing this for quite some time is that once they have laid the foundation, those construction vehicles, for the most part, disappear. And that is because, and what that tells us, is that most of the heavy lifting and serious work goes into laying the foundation. Because if you get the foundation wrong, well then your structure can collapse. Or it will shift and it will crack and it will not last. And talking about the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. So we see here that the foundation is absolutely crucial. It is fundamental, and it must come first. And the gospel is the foundation of your faith. However, the gospel is not just the foundation of your faith. But we also see in this passage that the gospel is the means of your salvation. The gospel is the means of your salvation. Look at verse 2. And let us take note here that this is the same sentence carrying on from verse 1, and the subject is the gospel. So it says, And by which, meaning the gospel, you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. <clears throat> As Protestants, many of us tend to tend to look at salvation as something in the past, something behind us. In fact, just for a moment, stop and ask yourself, how often do you ask people, how long have you been saved? This tends to happen among many of us. However, one of the things this verse does is it reminds us that salvation is not just something in the past, and it's not just something in the future, but it's in the here and now, which means it is relevant to your life. 
And when we read the word of God, we want to remember that that's exactly what it is. It is the word of God. And that means that the spirit of God moved the man of God to write the word of God to the people of God. And the spirit of God moved the man of God in such a way that what he spoke and what he wrote were the actual words of God breathed out by him. And so when we go into the manuscripts and we find those places where there are not a bunch of discrepancies or variations, well, then we can be pretty sure that what we are looking at are the actual words of God. And, then we, and because of that, we need to take the actual words serious. And here in the Greek, that word saved is in the passive present indicative. Now, some of you are probably saying to yourself, well, that sounds like a bunch of technical mumbo-jumbo. What's that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with you. It's actually really important and really enlightening. Because salvation is in the passive voice, it lets us know that it is something being done to you. You are not saving yourself. You do not even contribute to it in any way at all. Rather, God saves you. The fact that it's in the present tense tells us that it's not just something in the past or something in the future, but it's in what we could call the eternal now. Yes, we can look back and say that the finished work of the cross took place over 2,000 years ago in history. And yes, we can say that we have already been justified, which means declared righteous before God as our judge. Because the Bible teaches us that when you come to faith in God, you have already passed through judgment in your union with Christ. And yes... We can all say that we're looking ahead to a time known as the glorification when Jesus will return and he will create the lake of fire and he will throw sin, death, and Satan into that fire and we will be raised in a glorified human body that does not die like him so that we can live with God forever. And this is something that we as Christians look forward to. However, we must remember that we are also constantly Here and now in a process of sanctification where God is making you holy. He is purging sins from your life. As the spirit works through the word in your life, you are being molded into the image of Christ. And day by day, we are being made more and more like him. And even when we get to that future time of glorification, we need to remember that salvation will still be something being done to us. And this is good news. But let us not neglect the fact that we see conditional clauses here. It says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, and unless you believed in vain. If you truly have come to faith in God, God is the one saving you. You cannot fall away. You do not have to to worry about losing your salvation because you're not the one saving you. It's God who's doing all the work. And that means that you're guaranteed to persevere because he preserves you. And that means that you will hold fast if you've truly come to faith. A few weeks ago, I met a man who told me that he used to be Christian and has since been liberated from Christianity as though it's some form of bondage. 
And when I asked him about it, he began to explain bits and pieces of his story, and I listened with compassion. And as I did, I could not help but feel a growing sense of sadness in my soul. Because here was a man before me who was obviously very intelligent. Yet I could tell that he had grown up in a church completely void of sound doctrine. And as a young adult, he began to engage in outreach activities. And as people began to ask him questions, he began to realize that he could not even answer his own. And this growing skepticism within him led him to the false and foolish conclusion that God does not exist. Now just hold on to that for a second. One of my favorite quotes from church history comes from Augustine of Hippo. Many of you may know him as St. Augustine, the church father. Look at what he said. He said, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. When we come to faith in God, it's not that we know all the details. It's not that we have everything worked out and we can say that we understand. Rather, it's that God has given us faith by grace. And the gospel then becomes the foundation of our faith. And from there, everything else is built off of it because we have a faith that seeks understanding. And it accomplishes that understanding through discipleship, through study, and through time with God. But those who believe in vain are those who fall away, and those who go out from us were never of us to begin with. And it says this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. If you yourself struggle with doubts, if you yourself find yourself not growing in understanding, well, then you need to examine yourself. As it says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet that test. That man who said he walked away was never Christian to begin with. He had believed in vain because his faith was not founded on the rock. Those who believe in vain only believe with their minds. But true saving faith is belief not just from the mind, but also from the heart and the will as you commit to obedience and following God because you submit to his authority. Even the demons believe with their minds and they shudder out of fear that doesn't make them saved. Rather, those who have true faith also have a personal trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They're not trusting in their belief. They're not trusting in their understanding. 
They're not trusting in their knowledge. We trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And that brings us to the next affirmation that we see in this text, and that is that the gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ. Take a look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. The content of this verse is Christ. It is Christ who is delivered. It is Christ who is of first importance. It is Christ who is received. And it is Christ who died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. And so who or what is Christ? Well, for starters, the term Christ is basically the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah, which means anointed one or promised one or chosen one. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see how there's this promised Messiah who will be the seed of the woman and will crush the head of the serpent. He will also be the seed of Abraham, and in him all nations on earth will be blessed. And he will also be the seed of David, who will rule in the kingdom of God forever. And in Isaiah, we see that this Messiah will also be a suffering servant and a world conqueror. But if you can believe it, the concept of Christ goes even deeper than this. And we see this in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what he said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we see here that to be Christ is also to be Lord. Before the exile into Babylon of the southern kingdom of Judah, many of the Jews there most likely knew how to pronounce the covenant personal name of God, which was most likely pronounced Yahweh. However, the Hebrew manuscripts were not written with vowels. And so when they went into captivity in Babylon where the language was Aramaic and they were there for 70 years... The older generations passed away, and the younger generation grew up knowing only Aramaic. So during the Second Temple period, when they were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, reestablish God's people, nobody knew how to pronounce God's personal covenantal name. 
So out of reverence for God, when they would come to his name in the public reading of the scripture, they would replace it with one of his other titles, Adonai, which means Lord. But then right after this, during the intertestamental period, which was the 400 years of God's silence between the two testaments, Alexander the Great came and spread Greek language and culture, making Greek the common language of all the peoples, including the Jews. So they took the Hebrew manuscripts and they translated them into Greek, making the first translation known as the Septuagint. However, since they had replaced the reading of God's personal covenantal name with the term Adonai, which means Lord, when they translated his name into Greek, they translated it as Kurios, which means Lord. So when we ascribe the term Lord to Jesus, we are saying that he is the covenant God of Israel who came to save his people. Here is a diagram of what happened. Yahweh transitioned to Adonai, which means Lord. And so this is why even in our Greek, uh, in our English translations, when you read the Old Testament and you come to his personal covenantal name, most times you'll see it replaced with a capital L-O-R-D. And so when we ascribe the term Lord to Jesus, we are saying that he is Yahweh. This is the good news. Jesus is one divine person with two natures. He is fully God. And he's fully man. And those two natures are fully and perfectly united in what's called the hypostatic union in the one divine person of Jesus. And it is because Jesus is God that he is capable of saving you. If Jesus isn't God, there's no salvation for anybody because only God can be our redeemer. And we can see this in Isaiah 54, 5, where it says, for your maker is your husband. This is covenantal language right here. The Lord, meaning Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. This is the good news that Jesus is God. And because he's God, he's also able to save us. And if the gospel is Christ, and it is, obviously, well, then the content of the gospel message would be the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's the next thing that we see in our text here. The gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at 3 and 4. At the end of 3, it says... Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. And in four, it says he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Concerning Jesus' death and resurrection in particular, we see three main things here. First, we see that Jesus died for our sins. Now, we just talked about how Jesus is one divine person with two natures. He's fully God, and he's fully human. And in his humanity, 
He gave himself for our sins. In fact, in our passage, in the Greek, it's actually written as in place of. And what this tells us is that he died a substitutionary death on the cross. It tells us that he died as what's called a propitiation, which is a big fancy theological term that basically means that he died to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. And this is the good news because God is the source of life. He is life in and of itself. And he is the overflowing source of all good. And when we sin in and of our own free will, we receive death as a consequence. Death is the consequence of sin. And because God is of infinite value, the duration of the penalty is of infinite duration. And so, him having died for the sake of our sins allows us not to have to suffer. Yet every single one of us in here are sinners. Every single one of us in here falls short of God's glory. Every single one of us in here have turned away from God and done things in our own way. Every single one of us in here is an idolater. Every single one of us in here is guilty of despicable and wretched things. And every single one of us in here deserve to be in hell. And if God were to destroy every single one of us, then he would be completely just in doing so because that's what we deserve so do not be like the people out there that are raising their fists and saying we want justice you don't want justice if you get justice you'll be in hell rather what you want is grace ask for grace it's only by grace that you are saved in Christ because he gave himself for our sins the next thing we see here oh actually we see this clearly in Galatians chapter 1 It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice how it does not say that he gave himself to free us from the future judgment. Instead, it says that he gave himself to free us from this present evil age. We talked about how in our salvation we are being purged of our sins. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. Jesus died to take all of our sins away. And if you have faith in God, that is because you have been born again. And if you've been born again, you got the Spirit of God in you. And if you got the Spirit of God in you, then you have the power to say no to those things that are sinful and yes to those things that are righteous. And this is what Jesus died for. And so some of you may be asking yourselves, well, how is it possible that Jesus did all the work and I receive all the benefits? And that's a good question. And we see the answer to it here in 2 Corinthians where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in his humanity was sinless. Remember that he was born of the woman. He was not born with a human father. And the sinful nature is passed down from Adam. And so he had no sin. 
And because in his humanity he was sinless, he was able to live under the law perfectly in a sinless manner and achieve righteousness. And being that he had no sin, he could not die. Remember, death is a consequence of sin, so how did he die? Well, he took your sin upon himself, and he died for it. And through your faith, you are united to him. And it's not some impartation we're talking about. This is known as an imputation in our union with Christ, because Christ took on the emptiness of the universal form of humanity so that through our faith we can participate in him and receive the blessings of what he has earned on our behalf. And that is amazing. But the next thing we see here is that Jesus was buried. And this is really important as well because it lets us know that he actually died. People do not bury people, knowingly, that are not dead. Or at least his disciples would not have buried him if they knew that he was alive. But he was buried, and that lets us know that he actually died. And that's good news, because if he didn't die, well, you're still accountable for your sins. The next thing we see is that Jesus was raised on the third day. All throughout the Near East, even before the time of Moses, the people in, in the Near East had this understanding that it would take three days to travel from the realm of the dead to the realm of the living. And so God, all throughout the Old Testament and in the death and resurrection of Christ, used this concept as a redemptive analogy to communicate with the people that Jesus actually died and was buried and descended into the realm of the dead, as it says in the Apostles' Creed. And we see here that he was raised. This is in the passive voice, meaning that he was raised by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, showing us that the resurrection is a Trinitarian act of salvation, and God is fully actual in your salvation. And it's just crazy that today we have people who will deny the resurrection. And what's funny is that if you continue to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, you'll see that they had the same problem. And that's what he's about to go into address. But let us remember that Jesus actually was raised from the dead physically and bodily. It wasn't metaphorically. It wasn't spiritually. He was actually raised Physically, And that's what gives us our future hope in the resurrection to be raised in glory just like him. And if you read down through here, look at verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16 in this same chapter. Coming up on the screen. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But praise God 
He has been raised and he is risen. And because of that, we have hope in the future resurrection. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. His death and his resurrection accomplished for us the reconciliation with God that is impossible apart from Jesus. And so the next thing we see here is that this message is not just some fairy tale. It's not just some fable, some story, some tradition that we tend to tell each other over and over again. Rather, it's all rooted in God's authority. If you guys remember earlier, we talked about true saving faith being rooted in the authority of God. And here we are going to see that even Jesus, everything Jesus did, he constantly pointed to the authority of Scripture. And even though we know he was one who spoke with authority because he is God, he still pointed to the authority of Scripture. And when we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see what many of you might call the Great Commission passage. But take a look at the language. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to them, meaning the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Jewish compilation of the Old Testament is arranged in three parts, and it's known as the Tanakh. First, the Torah, which is the law of Moses. Second, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets. And third, the Chetavim, which are the writings, the biggest portion of which are the Psalms. So what Jesus is saying here is that all of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, testifies about him and prophesies about him. And that all of it's happening according to the authority of Scripture. And as the verse goes... As this passage goes on, look at what it says. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So even his death and his resurrection was shown to be rooted in the authority of Scripture. And because the gospel is not just a message to be received, but one also to be passed on to others, we are encouraged that we are not trying to share this in and of our own authority. It's the authority of God in Scripture. And just as we came to faith through that, others come to faith as well. And so we've learned here that the gospel is the foundation to your faith. And it is the means of your salvation. Because the gospel is Christ and his death and resurrection. And all of this is rooted in God's authority found in scripture. And so we're being called here today to affirm and celebrate the gospel. Be thankful to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Affirm this. Understand this. And preach this to others. Pass the gospel on. It is not something to be kept to yourself. It becomes a part of your life. And you yourself 
are a miracle. If you've actually been born again, you've been ripped out of your sinful nature and you've been born in the spirit of God, which is a miracle in itself. And so you have a testimony, no matter what that might look like. And you are being called to to examine yourselves and make sure that you are in the faith. And if you are in the faith, then it is your duty to tell others. So today as you go out from here, Please consider just one person that you can tell about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope for anybody. But if your faith is in Christ, then it's founded on the rock. Let's pray. Father, it is abundantly clear. That you are merciful. Your grace is moving. And we beg of you. That you help us to live up to the calling that you have given us. Thank you so much for what you have done. Thank you for condescending to us. For taking on the human nature just to suffer and die in our place. Thank you for being raised so that we can live with you forever. God, we ask that you use this to transform our lives, that you use us as your witnesses, and that you do this in such a way that day to day we are reminded of your love. Thank you for the gospel. Help us.